The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. Um, we're departing on another journey this week, uh, not related to uh, last week's EDU show, which now is, oh, actually, I do remember what that one was. That was a dedicated Social Security show that I did. Um, but today we're going to dive into an article uh, that Jim found, that Jim ran across, a recent article actually just released in the last day or two from, um, from when we're recording this. And if you want to look up the article yourself, it was pretty easy to find. Uh, it's entitled How Traditional Retirement Models Cost Clients Millions by Rajiv Rebello, R-E-B-E-L-L-O. And it comes up on uh, Advisor Perspectives, which also uh, parent name uh, Vetify, V-E-T-T-A-F-I. And this was uh, it's not behind a, uh, a paywall or anything at this point. It might be in the future, but right now I was able to just Google it and pull it up and it was right there. So... Uh, we're going to kind of walk through this and examine some of the uh, findings slash claims that uh, Mr. Rebello has in his article. And uh, one thing I do want to get into before I turn things over to Jim a little bit and let him dive into this article is that um, I misspoke on describing something last week on the EDU show that our uh, uh, part of our tax team, Paul, one of the CPAs in our tax team here, listened to the show and shot me an email and said, hey, I think you uh, described this incorrectly, and he was exactly right. Um, I was talking at the time about survivor benefits and claiming them early, and I made a comparison over to your own retirement benefit and how the, the reduction factor is different, and I I uh, incorrectly lumped together at the time retirement benefits and spousal benefits kind of into its into the same category. And they're in uh, on one hand, they're in the same category because they're not the same as survivor benefits as far as the reduction factor. But even there's a little difference between retirement, your own retirement benefit and spousal benefit reduction factors. So I wanted to make sure that that was clear to everybody. They're not the same, which is kind of what I implied by kind of putting them into their own grouped category separate from survivor benefits. And, and the basic difference is, uh, 
as you're claiming your own retirement benefits earlier than your full retirement age, uh, over the first three years of early claiming, the reduction factor is 20%. Uh, over the first three years of early claiming of spousal benefits, it's a more harsh 25%. So so the, the early claiming reduction uh, for people who are claiming, say, at 62, when they look at their own benefit versus their uh, uh, spousal benefits, their own benefit was reduced uh you know, 30% if your full retirement age is 67, whereas a spousal can be 35%. It's a harsher, more punitive reduction factor. So don't want to go eat up any more of today's show with that, but I wanted to make sure that that was clear before we got too far away from that show last week. So with that clarification, I'll turn things over to Jim and uh, we'll have a little journey through this article, which may or may not extend into another show. We'll just have to see how it goes. Well, after that long intro, it's probably going to. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> and I, I forgot to mention I needed to clear that one up because uh, Paul was nice enough to point that out to me last week, a couple days after the show. He said, hey, you kind of lumped these together, and that's not quite right. And, and he was correct. It was At the time, I wasn't focused on that. I was focused on the survivor aspects of it. But I did, in hindsight, misspeak and, and, and indicated they were kind of the same over on, on the non-survivor side. So just wanted to clear it up. We've got to get folks, our new tax team, on the show for everyone. Uh, for those who don't know, Bob, our longtime tax CPA, left uh, right after tax prep season ended in April. He uh, has his own business. He worked for another firm and he worked for us and he was being pulled too thin. So uh, Bob departed uh, on good terms and we brought on board three uh, podcast listeners, all CPAs with a combined 60 plus years of CPA experience. They're all retired to one degree or another, although Paul works a hell of a lot for someone who's retired. And Paul, I know you listen. So <laughs> I found that fun. E, But um, they're all very, very smart. And uh, we'll get back into tax questions specifically. Paul is very anxious to come on the podcast. And I believe Alan is too, although I don't want to speak for him. And then Steve is the newer of the three CPAs. And I believe Steve might be willing to come on as well to answer a lot of your tax questions. So be on the lookout for that and hopefully the not too distant future. And we'll start getting some of the new CPAs uh, on the podcast. Yeah. But today's article literally just came out today, folks, because I get a update from Vetify slash Advisor Perspectives uh, every day. And this is actually date stamped 1016 to 23, which is what I think yesterday was. But I got the link for it today. Uh, we're recording this uh, on, on Tuesday, the 17th. And I read through it just over my morning coffee and and piece of toast. I didn't go get a bagel. I should have got a bagel, Chris, because bagels on the East Coast just blow away bagels anywhere else. But I didn't feel like driving to the bagel shop this morning. So I had a piece of raisin bread toast, which was nothing special. But as I was reading it with my coffee, do you remember when I kind of went off on a tangent on the show um, oh, you never do that. I'm surprised that happened. <laughs> never do. No, <laughs> I, it was recent. I would say two, three weeks ago. And just off the cuff, I, I remarked something to the effect of, 
one of the things, I think it was because of the, the gentleman, Frank, who sent us the dialogue. And Frank, if you're listening, I have no problem with your dialogue at all. We have different approaches to retirement planning. And I made that perfectly clear. But one of the things that you and I don't like about the safe withdrawal rate, Chris, um, slash Monte Carlo probability statistic is I said, where do those advisors factor in their fee? And are they factoring in their fee? When they lock someone into a 4% safe withdrawal rate or 3.8, 3.1, 2.8, 4.7, these are all legitimate numbers that I've read in recent memory mm-hmm. of what the safe withdrawal rate truly is. Whatever arbitrary number you are choosing as your safe withdrawal rate, I asked rhetorically, but with, with a strong degree of cynicism, where did those in the industry who are charging you 1% of an uncapped AUM fee, where are they adjusting for that in that Monte Carlo probability statistic? And I believe you said something to the effect of, Chris, they're not. I think in general they're not. I'm sure there's some that do. Some are probably self-reflective enough to include that in there. But um, I suspect if it was typical or common, we would hear about it regularly. And I just don't hear it mentioned um, very much at all. So I suspect it's just kind of either intentionally or just through inattention swept under the rug. So this morning... When I saw the title of that, How Traditional Retirement Models Cost Client Millions, I have no idea what that was going to cover. And I've never heard of Rajiv, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, if he's for some bizarre reason listening to this podcast. I'm terrible with names, so it's my best shot at your name. Uh, Rajiv Rebello. Uh, It turns out he is an actuary, so he knows... He knows numbers. (laughs) Say what? He knows numbers. He knows numbers. And I there's a joke out there that I actually giggled at, but I think only CPAs would find it funny. It was at the the ASCPI the the A AICPA meeting that I went to pre-COVID. So it was just it was nothing but CPAs there. And the joke was, do you know what an actuary is? And then the answer was it's a CPA without the personality. And everybody chuckled. Anybody knows CPAs? <laughs> they generally don't have much of a personality. Oh, I don't know about that. I, kind of I find said it. generally. Yeah. So that was the joke, that an actuary was a CPA without the personality. Anyways, the gentleman is a CPA, so that means he knows numbers and he can crunch numbers. Uh, he predominantly works with high net worth individuals, or excuse me, ultra high net worth individuals, according to his his bio. So that is most likely people in the tens of millions of dollars, but I don't want to speak for him. He works a lot with family offices, which are specialized RIA practices that generally work with ultra high net worth individuals. And he works with CPAs and estate planning attorneys. But he wrote an article pointing out The true cost of the fees you pay advisors. I'm in agreement with a lot of what he writes, but not everything. I think in the example he gives, I don't like some of his assumptions. And as I read through his article, like we always do, Chris and I are going to openly share our thoughts. 
But I love his takeaway, especially one of the graphs. And when we get to it, hopefully on today's show, if not, I'll continue this next week. Uh, it really struck home with that specific thing that I just off the top of my head blurted out. Where is that 1% fee being adjusted for? And his findings were quite, quite eye-opening. So I thought, this is going to be the next EDU show. I doubt we're going to get through it in one sitting because Chris took forever to, to turn the microphone over to me. But we're used to that, folks. He goes down those rabbit holes. But uh, I think we're ready to move forward unless you have anything else you want to say. Monsieur. No, I'm raring to go. Okay. I think it's Monsieur, not Monsieur. Whatever. Either way. We're ready. Uh, yeah, either way. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to begin like I always do, folks. I'm going to just read through. Chris, at any time, if you want to add something, just tell me to hush. And uh, you can, can add something. If not, when I finish reading his point, we'll open it up for discussion. Fair enough? Sounds good. Okay. So he begins. The choice to use an advisor in retirement is one that will cost clients and their beneficiaries millions of dollars in fees and opportunity costs, as I will show in this article. If advisors are allocating clients to traditional stock and bond investment models without implementing any actual retirement, investment planning, or estate planning solutions, clients will never recoup their fee. The word fiduciary gets used a lot by AUM advisors. And for those who don't know what we mean by AUM advisors, AUM stands for Assets Under Management. It by far is the preferred way that most registered investment advisory firms or the investment advisor representatives that represent registered investment advisory firms charge. Brokers, otherwise known as registered reps, they're the ones who get that evil uh, moniker they charge commissions. A registered investment advisory firm or the investment advisor representatives that work for them, they push that, oh, we are fiduciaries and we are fee-based or fee-only on some of them. And we're just going to charge you this pure as the driven snow fee. We're not going to charge that evil commission. So that's what he means by AUM-based advisors. So he goes on. The, um, the word fiduciary gets used a lot by AUM-based advisors who claim to be acting in the client's best interests because their fee model aligns incentives with that of the client. Let me pause there, Chris. Which famous RIA constantly uses that in their marketing? Well, they smack you across the face with it at Fisher Investments. That's part of their that's that's their mantra, if you will, on their television uh, commercials over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Right. When you do better, we do better. Yeah. They're trying to say, "Hey, our fee charging you to manage your money, uncapped, folks, 
just as your assets keep growing because the market's going up or you're consolidating accounts for simplicity purposes or convenience purposes, or you inherit additional assets or however you're coming into more money. As your account grows, when you do better, we do better. The implication is if they weren't going to do better by helping you manage your money, if you didn't willfully keep paying them more and more and more, when the account balance is rising, not necessarily attributable to things that they are doing, but merely because the market is going up. Which it tends to do. Pardon? Which it tends to do. Which it tends to do. Long-term markets tend to rise, not fall. As most of the listeners here know, they're all do-it-yourselfers. As long as you are somehow willing to keep paying them merely because the markets are rising, they're going to continue to do what's in your best interest. But they also, they being Fisher Investments, specifically imply that if you don't charge that way, you have no incentive then as an advisor to help your client. And you're not going to try to help the client manage their money and do good. As a firm that specifically caps our fees because I cannot stand the uncapped AUM model, I take offense to that because I will argue our firm does probably far more than Fish's firm on sound retirement planning. That's a big thing to say, I admit. And maybe I should uh, caveat that with as long as you follow our approach, the, the fun number style approach, obviously. But I disagree passionately with AUM advisors who say it is fair. I'll tell you what it is, folks. And this gentleman, Mr. Rabello, is picking up on it and pointing it out in his article. It's really profitable. And that's why it continues to this day. And I'm going to keep going down this rabbit hole because the whole idea of these articles, folks, is to get me just on a tangent. So if this takes two shows, it takes two shows. So we don't need the article. All we need is the title of the article. And and then (laughs) Jim will go and do his deal. (laughs) But I I never mentioned this, Chris. And I I talked to someone at the, the Rock Retirement Club where I was this past weekend. And all you rockers out there, it was a pleasure to have been with you this past weekend in in New Orleans, no, not New Orleans, where the hell was I? Um, Dallas, wasn't it? Dallas, thank you. Dallas, Fort Worth. Why did I say New Orleans? Hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. But anyways, it was a play. It was down south. It was a pleasure to be with you guys this weekend. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was fun meeting everybody. And some were podcast listeners. And they were a feisty bunch, Chris. So, And if anyone is listening, if you're looking for a community, I guess is the word I'm looking for, a community mm-hmm. of, of other like-minded individuals who, who want to work together and, and help each other try to achieve retirement, whatever that vision is, if it's a fun number approach like Chris and I came up with, or if it's a safe withdrawal approach or some approach that you did on your own. You might want to check out that Rock Retirement Club group. I knew nothing about them before going down there and chatting, and I thought they were really nice people. I, I think it's – I'm going to guess, Chris, I have no idea, rockretirementclub.com or my office. I think so. I think right. They, they let people in in a phased approach. I think they're kind of in a quiet period right now, so you might not be able to join up right away if you're interested. But you can go there and you know see what you get in return for – it's a subscription fee uh, that you get in there, but uh, – yeah, yeah, it's a it's a community. That's like you mentioned. 
Yeah, it's a community. It's not an endorsement, but it's a community, and uh, it, it was nice. Nice people. Okay, back to what's going on here. During that presentation, I mentioned to someone something that I admitted I don't really talk about on the podcast. And the person asked me about buying an income annuity from a private equity-owned insurance company and, and my thoughts on it. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But during that conversation, I said to them, I says, you know, in fact, because this person mentioned a reason why they thought private equity was buying insurance companies. And I told them, I agree. It's sticky money. The money inside these annuities with long penalty periods um, are sticky for the private equity companies. And then they move the assets overseas because they can benefit from gap accounting with a Bermuda-based company rather than SAP accounting with a Massachusetts, excuse me, a U.S.-based company. And that gives them additional paper profits. And then they can invest a lot of those dollars. So it's sticky. One of the biggest purchasers of registered investment advisory firms in the United States and has been for, I would say, the last seven to 10 years, they call them consolidators, these companies that just buy dozens and dozens and dozens of these companies that are managing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and just combining them are private equity firms. Private equity is reeking through our industry, our industry being registered investment advisors. They're not generally running out and buying brokers or broker dealers, as the industry calls them. They are, and they are consolidating on that end too. But that's mostly because a lot of brokerage houses are also becoming duly registered advisors, where they have um, brokers or registered reps, as well as advisors or investment advisor representatives, IARs. I don't want to go too deep into that, back to where I was going with this and when I was talking to that person in the Rock Retirement Club. I was pointing out that private equity loves our industry because of the stickiness and profitability of AUM, especially if they get you into AUM and they start also providing and selling proprietary products, business development corporations, alternative investments, even private equity uh, separately managed accounts or, or private equity uh, funds that they can put you in so they can make money off of the management fee and also off of the investments themselves. All of this will be disclosed to you or should be disclosed to you in the form ADV. So nothing that I am sharing with you is, is out of the norm. But private equity loves our industry because it can be incredibly profitable and scalable. When all what you are doing is gathering assets, AUM, gathering AUM, gathering AUM, and putting, you can tell people on the outside, we have customized portfolios geared specifically for you and your situation. That's BS, folks. Behind the scenes, you're just going into home office models. 
They might tweak that model a little bit to make it special for you, or they might try to push selling you even a higher priced service, direct indexing, they call it, and they can specifically exclude certain segments of the market, certain equities or overweight certain segments. ESG is a big one that they're going to invest in all of these these ESG style companies. All of this is really designed to separate you from your dollars via an uncapped AUM. And anything they can do to justify a higher AUM fee, they're going to do. But go or look at where the private money is going. Look at where the the deep pocketed private equity dollars are going. They're going into insurance companies and they're going into registered investment advisory companies because both of them are scalable and incredibly profitable. But private equity exists for their shareholders. The notion that it exists for the individual, I think, is a fallacy. But anyways, that's my own personal opinion. Others may disagree. But I wanted to share that because if you look at where the quiet money is going and what's happening behind the scenes, it should be making you say, why? Why are they doing this? Well, as this gentleman is going to point out, it's very, very profitable. Okay. So he continues. The idea is that is that by providing long-term advice and charging for it on an ongoing basis, a fee-only advisor is aligned with the client more than an advisor who only sells products and earn a large one-time upfront and often opaque commission. I agree entirely with that sentence there. He continues though, but the reality of the situation is that an AUM advisor has similar conflicts of interest. I'm glad finally someone's calling this out besides me. An AUM-based advisor has similar conflicts of interest, namely to advocate for solutions on which they can charge their AUM fee. I'm going to pause there, Chris, and let you chime in on what that whole first paragraph said. But when I read that first paragraph, I was already in love with this <laughs> article and this man. I never even met him. I got a, I got a, what is it? Was that bro crush? A man, man, uh, man crush? Is that what it's called? Sure. That's yeah. good enough. I think it's what it's called though. Mm-hmm. Man crush. Uh, on this guy. I, just, I was like, I love that. I was like, this is exactly what I have been saying. Anything you want to chime in on what he was pointing out? Yeah. And the conflict specifically would kind of reveal themselves in, maybe a resistance to suggest something that where you would remove a lot of money from under that advisor's management, because that would have a direct reflection on their or direct impact on their paycheck. Uh, say you were considering, you know, buying uh, an, an annuity or moving money into real estate, maybe a second home or, you know, anything that isn't under the purview of the AUM advisor, uh, their natural reaction, not, not that, they all would succumb to this. There's, you know, some that um, in the grand scheme of things, they have plenty of AUM, your little, you know, your withdrawal of $300,000 is not going to make much of a dent in their overall pay. 
And so it uh, wouldn't matter. Or even if it did, there's some that are uh, ethical enough to realize that's maybe what you really want to do and it's in your best interest. And so they would fully support that. I'm not saying it happens to everybody, but the, you know, throughout this world, how people are paid has proven to be have a great influence on how they behave. And this industry is no different. So, uh, you know, it can come in the form of not being supportive of you doing things with your dollars that might not keep the dollars in their management. It could be uh, if you are proposing doing something with your money uh, in something that they can't charge for traditionally. Uh, You know, before there was kind of a, a firewall between the investment world and the insurance world. And, uh, you know, doing one couldn't, you know, it was really separate and distinct from doing the other and had completely different compensation forms, etc. And just like the insurance guys get accused of, of, uh, you know, insurance being the, the solution to all problems when that's all they can sell. The investment advisory world has the same issue when all they do is investments, then of course, the cure is to keep everything invested, uh, you know, considering an insurance product is foreign to them, and, and they would never recommend such a thing. And the proof in that is now how advisors are starting to embrace certain insurance products, now that they're becoming available to sell within their AUM model. You'll notice it more and more now. Why? Because before they couldn't be paid on it. So guess what? They didn't support it or suggest it or recommend it, even if it could be a wonderful tool for a particular person. And suddenly now that they're going to be paid on it, it becomes attractive. There's the proof right there. The proof's in the pudding. We're seeing a a, a wave of activity of insurance being embraced by RIA AUM folks because now they've figured out a way to charge on it. And before they didn't have that way. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, pretty much in alignment with what Jim is describing his, his concerns or complaints about how the system works. Right. And let me make perfectly clear, folks. My firm, Jim Soling Associates, LLC, mm-hmm. is a registered investment advisor firm. Mm-hmm. I am not a FINRA registered, uh, registered representative of a broker dealer. We don't sell brokerage products and earn commissions. So I am not trying to throw an RIA under the bus, nor am I trying to support a commission-based broker. But commission-based brokers, the best analogy I have come up with is the commission-based brokers have lousy marketing and RIAs have wonderful marketing. And one is considered a rat, a commission-based broker, the other is like a bushy-tailed squirrel, and that would be the RIA advisor. Everybody loves a bushy-tailed squirrel. Nobody likes a rat. But if you stop and think about it, both of them are rodents. They do the same thing. They breed like rabbits, no pun intended, but they breed like rabbits. They are rodents. They have the, those little sharp front teeth that never stop growing, and they have to constantly gnaw on things. But the bushy-tailed squirrel has that bushy tail. The rat got a rat tail. Outside of that, not much difference. The industry tries to portray the industry being the RIA industry, the AUM people. They portray a commissioned-based broker as a rat. That somehow being compensated only if you sell something and being held to a lower, lower suitability standard 
means the advice is going to be tainted. And I will freely agree there is a stronger preponderance for a broker to do something that's not in a client's best interest in an effort to earn a commission. I'll concede that. But the notion that an AUM advisor does not have any conflicts, that they are on your side of the table, you hear that all the time, or when you do better, we do better, that somehow that has no conflict, that's what ticks me off. Because I always felt if I'm not going to get paid by selling a product, a physical product, a mutual fund with a front-end commission, a variable annuity with a front-end commission, if I'm not going to sell those and be paid, how am I going to get paid? Well, I've got to sell something else, which is the concept of managing your money. And all of a sudden, I just started thinking, how is that any different? And I actually would crunch numbers and realize sometimes paying a commission, especially if you were young, and I got into this in my 30s, and I started working with people who are still in their 20s and 30s, someone young and maybe buying a very good but commission-based mutual fund would pay less over the long term than paying me 1% a year forever. And it just made no sense to me. How is charging someone 1% forever better for them? At the time when I got into this 25 years ago, A-share mutual funds would commission me 5.75%. 5% went to me. 0.75% went to the brokerage house I worked for. Simple math shows after seven years, six, seven, eight years tops, depending on market performance, client would have been better off with the 5.75 up front than 1% a year forever. It just made no sense to me. How is that more pure? I never thought it was, ever. So I started looking at me, my practice, and came up with the concept of, I'm just going to cap my fee. This doesn't resonate with me. This uncapped AUM forever, and I can pawn it off as being in the best interest of the client because I'm a fiduciary, I wish you all could see me. I'm holding my hands up, literally, making air quotes. Good thing my mom can't see me in her her room. I closed the door. She's going to think I'm crazy. This is my son talking, putting air quotes up all the time. But somehow, because I'm a fiduciary, that conflict is okay. There is a definite conflict there to get people to move money to you. And to specifically exclude a product you cannot be compensated for. And Chris is right. It's one of the reasons registered investment advisory firms and investment advisory representatives, the advisors who work for those firms, hate annuities. Or at least hated, past tense. 
Because up until a few years ago, they couldn't be paid on them. Now all of a sudden they love them, or at least those who have adopted fee-based annuities into their business model. Because the insurance company, that was what they did is they got rid of the upfront commission that went to brokers, just got rid of it. And that way a registered investment advisor could now sell it, but impose their own fee. And many of them do. And many of them put that same damn 1% fee. And if you crunch the numbers there, especially on MIGA's multi-year guaranteed annuities, with the difference in interest between a brokered and fee-based MIGA are in the tenths of a percent of BIPs. It could be 10, 20, 30 BIPs difference. It's not much. BIPs is basis points, folks. 100 basis points is 1%. We're talking 30, 40 Basis points difference between a commission-based MIGA and a fee-based MIGA. Yes, you'll get more in a fee-based MIGA, I'll agree, but not that much. But if your advisor who's selling it because a broker or an agent cannot sell a fee-based MIGA, only a registered investment advisor can. But if they're imposing a 100 basis point annual fee on that, no, they're not getting a commission, but they're getting a fee. You would have been better off paying the damn commission over the term of that MIGA. Does that make sense where I'm going with that, Chris? Yeah, I think so. We've talked about okay. that before, and it, it I think it should make sense. It's, you know, it's, it's a one-time cut versus an ongoing cut, and you could imagine pretty easily that the ongoing cut could exceed a one-time cut even if the one-time cut might be fairly severe up front, um, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the ongoing small cuts are better than the on, you know, than, than the well, one-time One thing cut. I will add, because these are do-it-yourselfers listening to this, mm-hmm. when someone is paid a commission on a MIGA and even on a variable annuity or a fixed indexed annuity, that commission does not come out of your initial deposit. So don't crunch the numbers thinking, well, you're not going to get as much initially invested. No, 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 no. The fee, it's all baked into the yield spread. If a commission-based MIG is going to pay 5%, but a fee-based MIG is going to pay 5.3, the fee is baked into the interest rate. All, let's say you put half a million dollars into the MIGA, all $500,000, whether you buy a commission or fee-based MIGA, gets invested. It's just that the interest is a little bit higher in the fee-based MIGA than it is in the commission-based MIGA. So do keep that in mind. In a mutual fund, back years ago when I started at Waddell & Reed and was a registered rep of a broker-dealer, in other words, folks, I was the evil commission-based broker when I first started 25 years ago. Back then, when I first started, the 5.75% commission that was earned did come out, Chris, right from the initial deposit. So you had less going to work for you. But that's going back years ago. The point is, right now, and it's being used more as a marketing shtick than anything, you see so many advisors who charge an uncapped AUM pushing this fiduciary standard or best interest and implying that the commission is a rat and they are a bushy-tailed squirrel. But honestly, a fee is a commission by another name. 
or a commission is a fee by another name. There is no way a commission based, excuse me, a fee based AUM advisor will be paid unless you buy something. Instead of buying, and you are, you're buying a, a product, you're buying their product, which happens to be their advice. It's a product they're selling you. They have to sell you something. Again, news for you. Even your doctor has to sell you something. He or she has to sell you on the conviction that they know how to make you well. And you are going to pay them for it. There is no exchange in this country of barter with money and product or service without a conflict. I'm going to go to Starbucks when I end this podcast. I'm going to buy a coffee. But Starbucks has a conflict of interest. They want to sell me more coffee. So in my little app, they're going to give me a certain number of stars. And every time I get stars, I might be able to get 25 cents off a free coffee or a free coffee later. They're doing that to entice me to buy more coffee. They even have a conflict of interest. So keep that in mind, folks. An AUM advisor also has a conflict. And that's what I hated about my industry. I knew there was a conflict there. It was just being presented as a bushy-tailed squirrel instead of a rat. I decided on my own to say, screw this. I'm just going to charge clients for the service I'm going to provide. That's why we call our asset management service here at my firm convenience portfolios. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it, how I'm going to invest it, what I'm going to put you in. You can go do it yourself, or if you don't feel like it, you pay me to do it. I'm going to cap my fee so you can consolidate all your assets and not worry about me getting paid more. If the markets are going up and you're doing well, I'm not going to earn more. Chris coined the phase. You do better when you do better. Something like that, right, Chris? Yep, you nailed it. And that was always a tenet of mine. This podcast isn't about me and my firm. It's about getting you to think of what Mr. Rebello is writing, even though we haven't gotten to much of what he's saying. I'm just opining right now. But he's really going to point out to you, trust me, folks, he's really going to point out to you the cost of this alleged fiduciary best interest advice. He does say you might get something for that advice, but he also implies Few people get true value for what they're paying. So let's continue with his article. He says, if there is a better, oh wait, excuse me. Yeah. If there is a better fit for the client that doesn't allow an AUM based advisor to charge a fee on it or would result in a reduction of their AUM fee, but is ultimately better for the client's goal, then the AUM advisor has, ready for this, Chris, the same conflict of interest as a commission-based advisor. Now, let me pause there. That does not mean the commission-based advisor or the fee-based AUM advisor is going to do something nefarious. All's what he is saying and I have been saying for the last 20-something years is that there is a conflict and to assume there isn't is naivete. 
It is just as conflicted for an AUM fee-based advisor as it is for a commission-based advisor. But it's always the commission-based advisor who is pointed out in the financial press, which is just idiots sometimes, that, oh, somehow they're wrong. They're the rat. They're the rodent that's a rat. You want this rodent over here with a bushy tail. They're still rodents. There is a inherent conflict of interest for an AUM advisor. Are they going to want, we've talked about this before for Edelman with his big belief in going into retirement with home equity, excuse me, with, with home mortgage debt. Is it because he truly believed in that? Maybe he did when interest rates were lower. I don't know if he's still spouting that now with interest rates at seven, eight percent. But Chris and I used to point out the conflict is there with his thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of clients across his empire, which I believe he's retired from and he's doing something different. And I have great respect for Rick. I would trade places with him in a hoppy. He's become much more successful than I'll ever be. But I don't agree. I just think it's conflicted for someone who is paid to manage money to encourage you not to take some money from his or her management and pay off a mortgage, but instead carry it into retirement for whatever reasons he gave. We did a whole show in the past on those reasons and how we disagree with them. And lo and behold, all that money that's not going to a mortgage is all of a sudden being managed by an advisory firm drawing a fee from it. We just wanted to point out that is as much a confliction as a broker trying to sell you an investment or an annuity or whatever, a private placement or non-traded REIT or whatever they're drawing a commission from. There's both, you have to admit, a conflict. A broker must go to great lengths to mitigate that conflict. I think an RIA should as well. And the best way to do it, and for those of you working with a AUM-based advisor, Ask them to cap the damn fee. Why do they have to keep being paid merely because the market's growing? What do you think, Chris? I don't think you're going to have a lot, a lot of luck uh, asking them to do that. If they're not already <laughs> doing that, that's not in their mindset. And so I think uh, um, I don't think you'll be pleased with the answer if you ask that, but it doesn't hurt. All they can ever say is no, right? Mr. Rebello continues. Furthermore, <clears throat> furthermore, paying a fee-only retirement advisor an ongoing fee to make and manage this decision for clients adds a heavy drag to long-term wealth. So, and I, I skipped a sentence before that. Let me read the sentence before it. This conflict and the conflict he's talking about is the one that I just mentioned, how Managing and being paid on money is a conflict. This conflict is most evident when clients enter retirement. The traditional glide path for an AUM advisor involves increasing the allocation from stocks and towards bonds as clients near retirement to reduce volatility in the portfolio and to protect from sequence of return risk. The client can withdraw a steady stream of income every year in retirement, hopefully without fear of running out of money. 
But this allocation choice often hurts clients' retirement goals and long-term wealth, particularly for clients in higher tax brackets. If you get Mr. Abello's article and read on, he clearly is working with ultra-high net worth clients because part of his general takeaway, folks, and where Chris and I freely admit our approach to retirement plan does not, he is trying to maximize inheritances at death. He truly believes in being the richest man in the graveyard. Now, that's easily done by people who have sufficient enough assets to cover all of their fun expenses, all of their minimum dignity floor, their aging, their buffer, their uh, guaranteed inheritance, all of that. If you have enough money to cover all that, maybe being the richest man in the graveyard is important to you. So a lot of the takeaway you'll see in his article, if you read it on your own, is also about maximizing an inheritance. Chris and I kind of draw the line there because many people, especially people listening to this podcast who may have one, two, three, four million dollars or so, with the majority of it most likely in always taxable retirement accounts and IRAs. Um, Generally speaking, when you go through our approach and we start showing you what we call the concept of a see-through portfolio and pulling out uh, all your minimum dignity for reserves, your aging reserves, your guaranteed inheritance, your buffer, all of these different elements to come up with the fund number, even though you might have several million, is really not that much when you start covering all of these expenses. And we encourage you to spend what money is there for fun on fun and not necessarily maximizing it for a guaranteed inheritance. Anything you want to add on that, Chris, because I know that's also been uh, uh, important to you as you and I have been working together. Uh, one of the things we don't like about a safe withdrawal rate uh, is it unnecessarily curtails spending on fun. But Mr. Rabello, and I don't know if you read the article or not, Chris, he really does push how much you could have at your death as being a good thing. And we kind of downplay that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it depends on your goals and your situation. Some people, um, you know, the inheritance is such a high priority to them, or they have so much that it's that's likely to leave an inheritance. So uh, an approach that improves that or increases that inheritance, while not restricting their ability to have as much fun as they could possibly imagine during retirement, that's a different situation than most of the people we work with. Most people we work with are what I would call mass affluent where they've got enough to do a lot of things, have a very uh, very good retirement compared to the vast majority of, of, of Americans, uh, honestly, um, but not so much that they don't have to worry about trade-offs. And that's really where you know our approach is really all about proper trade-offs in order to facilitate as much fun as possible while protecting those things that are, are critical or most important to you. So really depends on the circumstances. I could see where a, a inheritance maximization approach um, could fit for the type of people he, the, the author tends to work with, the uh, ultra high net worth uh, style of, of, of person. Okay. Uh, Mr. Rabello does disclose, or someone discloses at the bottom, that his firm does help 
um, the ultra high net worth people and their advisors implement fiduciary life and annuity uh, and alternate investment strategies. Uh, and a fiduciary life or annuity strategy is a fee-based strategy. So he, the reason I mention this is uh, he clearly doesn't include everything in this article because he writes next, and I'm going to skip a big chunk of his articles or download it because I'm not going to cover a lot where he gets into, he has a hard time with bonds. And if you read the middle of his article, he spends, a, it's a long article, folks. And he puts the numbers in there to back his point of view. He's against advisors, especially he said 1% AUM advisors. He never discloses how he or the um, firms that he represents with ultra high net worth individuals charge for their services. Uh, I'm going to guess they don't charge a 1% AUM fee, but or if they do, they somehow charge a fixed fee on it or something. I'm guessing. But he makes it perfectly clear he disagrees with uh, using bonds. So I'm going to skip that whole part. It gets away from what I want to cover. That comes down to a discussion for another day, I suppose you could say, or another show since this is going to run uh, two shows. But I'm going to skip that part of his, his mantra but if you read his, um, his article, you'll definitely, definitely understand where he doesn't uh, quite agree with purchasing bonds. And he lays out a, a compelling argument. I disagree with it. I disagree with some of what he writes, but I'm not going to argue that point with him. But he makes mention in his article, he says, later you will see... Uh, how utilizing insurance products rather than bonds could help uh, better. But he never gets into that in this article. So I'm guessing this was a snippet of a longer article, even though this is pretty long as it is. But um, I'm going to skip all of that part. Instead, I want to get back into what he's talking about as the cost of a fee-only advisor. So again, if you get this article on your own, you're going to wonder, Jim, why'd you skip the whole part where he, he writes about not generally caring for bonds? It's not what I'm trying to cover on this uh, little show, but anybody can download uh, the article. If you're trying to follow along, Chris, because I think you now by now downloaded it, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm after he talks all about bonds, and I'm at the part where he writes as the topic uh, the retirement income cost of a fee-only advisor. Okay, so outside of that tirade on bonds that he gave, he continues. A financial advisor typically charges a fee that is a percentage of client assets, generally 1%. On top of this, the client will also pay custodial fees and fund management fees that can add an additional 20 to 40 basis points. I will say, folks, there should be minimal custodial fees. Uh, most custodians, and we used to be with TD, now we're with Schwab once they gobbled them up. We don't really have, our clients don't have deep custodial fees. Schwab uh, makes their money um, in, in the, the trades. 
but not by charging commissions. Uh, what's what's the industry term for? I, it skips my my thought process. Order flow. Uh, they get paid for order flow. Isn't that it, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. PFO. So, and if you use ETFs and not active funds, you can keep uh, a lot of those fees low. I think his twenty to forty basis points is a fair generalization. Some of you may be paying more, some less. But his point is you could be paying 1.2 to maybe 1.4%, not one. And that's significantly more. That's higher. That's 20 to 40% more in fees than it even sounds like you're paying a 1% fee advisor. He continues, there are two problems with this type of fee structure. Number one the advisor is typically changing the asset allocation away from higher yielding stocks and towards lower yielding bonds. And then he gives an example and he walks you through and he's what I want to key in on is he's saying, hey, what if and he, he goes through this, if the stock portfolio is going to earn 8 percent and the bond portfolio is going to earn 4 percent, then a 1 percent fee is going to average about 12.5% of the return of the portfolio. But it is 25% of the return of the bonds. So what he's getting at, it gets a little confusing unless you follow along with him. The stocks are expected to earn 8%. And if you're taking a 1% fee from that, that's 1 over 8 or 12.5% of the return of stocks. But if your bond portfolio is expected to earn 4% and your advisor is taking one, you're giving up 25% of the return of your bonds. And I'm going to pause there. We're going to continue next week. But I'm going to pause with a brief story. Um And I shared this on the podcast in the past, but it just popped into my head on this. Years ago, when I was on a plane uh, sitting there and the gentleman next to me introduced himself, the plane hadn't taken off yet. It was still uh, on the runway or people were boarding or whatever. And we started chatting and he asked what I did. And I, I told him I was a financial advisor and everybody instantly thinks investments. Um, he mentioned that he has his money at a national firm. I won't mention which one. Um, he told me he was paying 1% and he told me he had a 60, 40 portfolio and he just, I don't know about you, Chris, but sometimes when people find out I'm a financial advisor, they just want to keep picking your brain and asking you all these questions. I have full sympathy for doctors and nurses and anyone in healthcare, because <laughs> I'm sure they get peppered yeah. with that all the time. Anyways, he asked me if I thought that was a reasonable fee to be paying. And you probably are thinking that I bored this guy for the rest of the flight across the country back home, and I didn't. Also, what I told him was something to the effect of uh, our forward-looking return uh, for a 60-40 portfolio at the time was five-something. Let's just call it 5%. And I said, you may be paying a 1% fee of your assets, but you could very well be giving him 20, 25% of your return. You will have to decide if the advice he is giving you is worth 
20, 25% of your return. And that's what Mr. Rebello here is trying to say. You may be getting or charging or being charged 1%, but assuming your stocks are going to earn 8 and your bonds are going to earn 4 And I think an 8% expected return is quite high. But anyways, he's saying you're going to be giving up 12.5% of your stock return and 25% of your bond return. And when you look at things that way, Chris, it's a lot more money than it sounds, doesn't it? Well, everybody, all the investment folks crow about the power of compounding over time and all the benefits that that can bring to you over longer periods of time as your returns compound and grow, earning returns on previously earned returns. The exact same thing happens with these fees. They compound just like your return does. So they're earning fees on previously generated fees almost. Kind of that that concept is going on here as your portfolio grows uh, via a compounding trajectory. So do the fees. And it sounds innocuous, sounds uh, innocent. Uh, the one, Oh, we're just taking 1%. But I think uh, when you frame it as what, what portion of the return that's being generated in a given year is taken as that fee... That opens a lot of people's eyes. So I, I do like looking at it that way. Exactly. It's my Sir Kensington moment. Remember I shared that story? I'm sure you have. You've served, shared about every story. <laughs> Sir Kensington. I, I couldn't repeat it. But. Spicy brown mustard? Does that not mention sure. that? Sir know. Kensington, spicy brown mustard? Maybe you haven't. I can't imagine you've held oh, sorry, that oh, one. Sorry, back. five more minutes, folks. So I love spicy brown mustard, mm-hmm. and this is a perfect example of it. As do I. I've been trying to cut sugar in my diet for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And one day I ordered Sir Kensington spicy brown mustard mm-hmm. off of Walmart.com when I also ordered my Gudens spicy brown mustard, which is my go-to mustard. Mm-hmm. And when Sir Kensington came in and I read the nutrition label, I threw it away. And I threw it away because it's under Gudens. It says, you know, total sugar zero, total added sugar zero. Mm-hmm. Under Sir Kensington, it said total sugars one gram, total added sugars one gram. Mm-hmm. Now, one gram, Chris, sounds like 1%. Doesn't sound like much, does it? No, but you cover all your food with it. So is that where you're well, going with it? I always look at serving size. Serving size was five grams. Oh, my gosh. Where Kensington spicy brown mustard is 20% sugar. Why the hell do I want to eat 20% sugar? I want mustard, not sugar. I threw it away. Hmm. One gram does not sound like much. And most people would have looked at that if they even look at a health label. Mm -hmm. And don't get me going on that because I'm pissed at, at the United States government for this. When you look at a health label, you got to do the math yourself. And I especially hate when the servings, uh, the, 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 the sugar is in grams, but the serving size is in milliliters. And you're taking out Google trying to figure out how many grams are in X number of milliliters. They should be forced to put in plain percentage on the front label contains 20 percent added sugar. But the U.S. government will never do that because big food owns them. Anyways, I digress there. But I always thought to myself, this is a wonderful example of what a 1% AUM fee sounds like. 
It's what I told the guy in the plane next to me. 1%, okay, might be reasonable fee, but it's based on your entire assets. But you're hiring an investment advisor. And that's what Rebello gets into on this. If you're not getting much more than asset management, it's probably not worth it. Now, there's a lot of advisors there who give a lot of work, but they charge on an AUM model. And I have acknowledged that. I've still told you to ask them to itemize on their fee. Hey, you're charging me 1% of my $1.5 million. I'm paying you $15,000 a year. And I concede you're doing a lot for me. Can you at least itemize this for me? So I know of this $15,000, how much is going to asset management? How much is going to tax planning, tax preparation, retirement planning, estate planning, whatever it is they're offering for you. They don't, they don't, Many, many don't itemize. So it's hard for you to ascertain if you're getting something of value. But anyways, back to this 1% fee, folks. It's 1% of your assets. But as Mr. Rebello points out in the middle of his article, it could be significantly higher percentage of your returns. Just like Sir Kensington, one gram of added sugar didn't sound like much but it's 20% of a serving size of five grams, which is a little over a teaspoon of, of mustard, had 20% sugar. Why the heck do I want 20% sugar in my mustard? So Sir Kensington, I'm throwing you under the bus. Your mustard stinks with 20% added sugar. You have not shared that story before. I would have remembered well, now that. you've got it. Now you guys get it and understand why I get so angry over this. Few people, everybody listening to this show, or most of you, you do-it-yourself, VG, Vanguardian, engineer types who probably know more about Excel than I ever will. Most people are not you. They don't read a health food label, and if they did, they wouldn't be able to determine what percent of Sir Kensington was sugar. They'll be able to tell you who Kim Kardashian is sleeping with or who Travis Kelsey is dating or whatever. But they're not going to be able to tell you how much sugar is in Sir Kensington. And they're certainly not going to be able to tell you how much they're paying their financial advisor. And my industry, which I can't stand at times, preys on that. They use that to their advantage. 1% of assets doesn't sound like much. But when you might be eking out a 4 or 5 or 6% return, they're taking a hell of a lot of your return. Mm-hmm. And in a negative market, you're paying for what at that point? And I've often said, and we'll talk about this next week and maybe the week after, depends how much of a tirade I want to go on this. Few investment advisors, especially in the accumulation phase, in the distribution phase, it's a little more difficult to benchmark. But in the accumulation phase, few investment advisors benchmark their performance net of their fee against a benchmark, a passively managed benchmark, because they know they're not even beating it. So it leads me to ask, what in the hell are you paying for? And Mr. Rebello is asking that as well. Are you getting anything else besides investment management? If you're not, and Mr. Abello's opinion I, I agree with, it's probably not worth what in the hell you're paying, and you're not going to get any justification or anything of value 
for the massive amount of money you are giving them or the big chunk of your return that you're giving them. That's why I decided to talk about this, not so much for the people who regularly listen to this podcast, but to encourage you, all you Vanguard VGs who get this, Tell it to your family, to your friends, to the stranger in the grocery store next to you as you're waiting to move through line, whatever. Get them to understand. Get the next person on a plane who starts asking you. Get them to understand to look at that uncapped 1% fee differently and demand, demand an itemization and an accounting of what it is you are paying for and demand in the accumulation phase at least to be benchmarked to a benchmark, so independent benchmark, not one that they created. So you can measure what are you paying for? You're really paying for what is called advisor alpha for those uncapped people who are pushing investment management as a second coming of Christ. Those people, you're really only paying for the return above the benchmark. Because the benchmark is what you could have went out with and bought on your own if you designed a passively managed benchmark using low-cost ETFs. On your own, you could do it. You're paying for everything above that. Start taking 1% of the return above that. And Chris, I don't think there's going to be much of a positive return, if any, but then you apply the 1% fee to it, there's even less. Just my thoughts. Definite food for thought. Spread the word. <clears throat> so um, we'll finish up this article next time. There's some juicy tidbits in it. I kind of scanned through it as Jim was uh, as was chatting. There's a few other things I'm sure you're going to mention. Uh, I know what you're going to key in on it, it without giving it too much yeah. away. The the graph towards the bottom that is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, it's got a couple interesting tables of calculations in here that were a bit eye opening. Exactly. When I saw it this morning, I was like, wow. Yeah, we got to chat about this article. Well, sounds good. So uh, you continue having a good time with your with your mom and uh, sister, right? Your sister's there too. Mom and sister, I will be here for the rest of this week. Next week, I will not be on Tuesday's show. So I'm, ooh, we're going to have to try to record before I leave Massachusetts because next Tuesday, I'll be at the Schwab Conference in Philly. Okay. We, this comes out on Wednesday, but we record on Tuesday. Yeah, we'll figure something out, or maybe I'll get Paul or somebody on, but uh, we can probably... Actually, we need to continue this uh, article we'll to finish it up. We'll so find time, we'll find time this week, week sometime to do week. it. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970 530 
1-800-926-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 